Before we get started with the podcast, join us in a remembrance. As a lover of documentary film, it's difficult not to look at Michael Apted's Up series as one of the greatest cinematic accomplishments of all time. It was boyhood before there was boyhood. Starting in 1964, continuing through the latest installment in 2019, and now, unfortunately, ending in its current form with the death of Michael Apted, the Up series followed the lives of 14 British children through ups, downs, beauty, tragedy, love, loss, death, and everything in between. Equally prolific as a narrative filmmaker, Apted is responsible for the Loretta Lynn biopic Coal Miner's Daughter, the mystery thriller Gorky Park, the acclaimed biopic Gorillas in the Mist, the Jodie Foster drama Nell, and the 19th entry in the James Bond franchise, The World is Not Enough, and many, many more. I first saw the first few installments of the Up series when I was in college, back when I was absorbing anything and everything I thought might be relevant cinematically. Its power even then was astonishing. The simplicity of it, the beauty in everyday people living everyday lives, the dedication and courage to keep it going for so long. Michael Apted was ahead of his time in so many ways, a cinematic stalwart who knew how to produce gripping, socially relevant commentary, and then follow that up with just a fantastic piece of entertainment. So safe voyage to the brilliant master of lensing humanity at its simplest and most rewarding, the great Michael Apted. They don't make them like him anymore. And why would they? He was a total original. So right now, on the count of three, let's all, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, no matter how loudly or quietly we need to say it, let's speak the name of one of Michael Apted's films that has meant something to us over the years. A documentary, a narrative film, even an episode of a TV series, whatever you want. And if you're not familiar with any of his work, use that moment to just say his name. Okay. All together, let's pay tribute. One, two, three. 49 up. Now it's time for the show. Country roses, blessed songs, mommy's here, daddy's gone, broken promises, gin and rye. All the mean and hurtful things that made baby Jesus cry. Hello and welcome to Movies with Gravy, a podcast in three acts where we discuss an under-the-radar new release and the films we believe inspired it. My name is Billy Ray Bruton and I am your host and antagonist for the next 90 minutes. And with me today is a man who wears so many hats, he might as well be a goddamn hat rack. He's an actor from films like The Mind's Eye and Almost Human, the writer and director of Sequence Break, the brains behind the rated R horror speakeasy, and the host of the Down in the Basement podcast on Spoon, the Ryan Seacrest of horror, Mr. Graham Skipper. Graham, you're here! Hello, I am here. Amazingly, I can't believe it. Episode 2. I know, I'm, I'm honored, and and uh, especially to, to follow the great Drea Clark, I can't, uh, can't, can't even believe I'm in the same league. Well, Drea was Drea was definitely serving it up. She she showed me right out of the gate that I've got to bring my A game because she came so prepared and so thoughtfully researched. Oh God! Well, that's not me. <laughs> I, I didn't think it was going to be me either. But after that first episode, I was like, "Well, you know, I guess I've got to do more than five minutes of research." I mean, it is your <laughs> podcast, Billy Ray. 
That's right. I can do any goddamn thing I want to do. Right? Exactly. You can do whatever you want. I mean, you could, you know, we, we could not talk about this movie today. We could talk about, I don't know, whales. Yeah. Well, you know, weirdly enough, the other night I was thinking, how long has it been since I've seen the Free Willy films? Wow. Gosh. I don't know how long it's been since I've seen them either. This makes me wonder, are there five Free Willy films? Um, are you thinking in terms of screen drafts? I, I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, let, you know, I'm looking it up right now. How many free? Oh, no. There are four Free Willy films. Oh, there's, man. Somebody make a fifth Free Willy. But there's, there's Free Willy, Free Willy to the Adventure Home, Free Willy 3, The Rescue, and Free Willy, Escape from Pirate's Cove. <laughs> wow. Escape from Pirate's Cove. I want to see that movie. Um, um, I, I mean, I, I've definitely seen the first two. I know I've seen the first two. I have not seen three or four. Well, how about this? Uh, Escape from Pirate's Cove stars Bendy Irwin. Oh, my God. And Bo Perfect. Bridges. And Bo oh, Bridges. my God. Perfect. Perfect. Wow. That's it. I feel like I need to do my own show just devoted to the Free Willy films. I don't want to steal Screen Drafts Thunder, but I mean, there's so much to talk about there. Well, I, I mean, you know, there was that podcast that did a minute of Star Wars every episode. They just talked about one minute of the Star Wars franchise. So you could do that for the Free Willy franchise. See, and my initial idea was that I was going to have a three minute section every episode of the podcast dedicated to the movie Twister. I mean, also great. Yes, Perfect. but I mean, Free Willy, it just kind of feels more right. Well, it's hopeful. You know, it's about freedom. It's about it's about hoping for, for greener pastures or, or maybe, I guess, I don't know, bluer waters. And it's also the movie where every time I see that whale jump over a little Jesse James Richter, I think, is he going to fall on him? I mean, it's an impressive jump. It is an impressive jump, especially, is that when the Michael Jackson song is playing? It sure is. Hold me. <laughs> what, man, what a time it was to be alive and a child. I know, and my, my, it, I mean, imagine looking at Michael Madsen as a, like a, a, com a comforting father figure. Oh my God, I forgot about that. That's right. He's like the good dad. He's a good dad. He's a good, well, I think he's the stern dad that doesn't like believe in all this whale nonsense, but then he changes his mind at the end well um we're here today to talk about a movie graham and uh what yeah that's right uh that's oh, what we're shit. all about here we like to find these little under the radar flicks that maybe folks haven't heard about or didn't know existed and you know actually talk about them and see what the fuck's up i love that it's great uh we should all uh strive to support indie film as much as possible and so i actually really truly think that this is a great cause well, you know, and there are some films that come along that defy description, categorization, even comprehension. And I would say that Fingers is definitely one of those films. <laughs> I would agree. I would agree. Uh, yeah. Um, and for the folks out at home who have no idea what we're talking about, now is the time when I play a clip. I'm pregnant. I can't keep it. What, what if there's something wrong with it? Maybe I wouldn't love it. These thoughts are real things. I'd be missing body parts. Walter's missing a pinky. Don't worry about my hand, please. <laughs> okay, so fingers. According to IMDb, this is the description. 
Amanda has an issue with other people's physical imperfections. Hell breaks loose when Walter, a co-worker of hers, shows up to work with a pinky missing from his hand. Now, that is a very uh, <laughs> summarized version of this film. I'm gonna is that all it says? That's all it says. Oh, wow. That is just the surface. I'm going to give you a little bit more of an idea of what this film is about. It does center around Amanda, but it also centers around another character. But Amanda works for a startup mental health app and has a bizarre, insanely overdramatic phobia of abnormalities of any kind. So when a guy at her office shows up one day missing a finger, she freaks the fuck out. Then he shows up missing another and another. So she starts seeing this uh, psychiatrist named Dr. Scotty who claims to be able to cure her, and they also begin a bizarre uh, doctor-patient relationship. And the other character is a character named Talky in the film, uh, one of the two men doing the cutting off of the fingers of Angela's co-worker Walter, a very meek man. Uh, They're doing the bidding of an old man named Fox, who seems to have some vendetta against Walter that we don't really find out about until the end, sort of. That's not even what the film's about. That's just a general overview. <laughs> I mean, what is the film about, really? <laughs> it, it, boy, um, it's it's weird to talk about this film because throughout the whole thing, I found myself really engaged and interested at where it was going, but I never once knew what it was about. I agree 100%. I The whole time I was like, I am so into this movie. This is very much my jam. Uh, I love the tone of this movie. I love what's happening in this movie. I, I could not, at the end of the film, tell you what actually happened. And and you know what? That's okay. That is okay. Um, but yeah, it, it's... Uh, it's a wild film. I'm, I'm glad that it's out there and I'm excited for people to see it. Hopefully people listening to this that maybe haven't seen it yet will check it out. Um, because man, it was a, it was certainly a, a unique viewing experience. Yeah. And it, it kicks, I love the way the film kicks off. And I, I would say the problem with any film when it has such a great opening is then you really have to follow through with that for the rest of the film. And the opening I think is terrific. You've got a guy, you know, running down this dark road, just illuminated by the headlights. And then, you know, you cut to the POV of really the car and you just have this masked figure doing this bizarre little uh, Bob Fosse-esque jazz hands number getting closer and closer. (laughs) And it's really engaging and it starts the film off on a really cool note. And it certainly made me intrigued as to where this film was going. Yeah, I mean, my, my my first note that I had when I was watching the film, you know, because we're obviously going to be talking about other films that we think are are sort of uh, in conversation with this one, um, was The Strangers. You know, the the, yeah. the very first note I had was I was like, oh, it's sort of like The Strangers, you know, because he's he's uh, Walter is his name, and he's sort of pleading like, why me, why me? Um, and then you have, of course, the Panda Man, uh, played by. The great Jeremy Gardner, yes. also a very good friend of mine, um, and uh, yeah, it's it's a great opening. Um, it's it's a really great. I, I actually really liked it beyond just the opening sequence too, because like then we get to know uh, what's her name, Amanda, Amanda, uh, yes. Amanda, and I I just sort of love having a character that is like, yeah, I'm weirded out by like short people, dark people, people with weird things going on. Um, I don't know what's wrong with me, but they freak me the fuck out. And, and I love that, you know, I love that as a character trait and as something that, um, 
that that gets established early on. She's she's pretty uh, uh, enigmatic and, and a, a cool character to follow. Yeah, and you know there is a nice correlation between you know she even has this moment where she's talking to I believe her boyfriend uh and she's talking about her maybe it's her friend where she talks about every time one of these things happens it feels like she's losing a piece of herself yeah and then of course that correlates nicely with poor walter who is actually losing pieces of himself (laughs) on a somewhat daily basis but yeah i like the amanda character who i call uh um a better version of uh melissa joan hart because that's who she reminded me of. Oh, wow. Yeah, sure. The whole time, I kept trying to look her up on IMDb, and I kept trying to look up other actresses that I knew that that looked like her, like felt like her, because uh, she definitely reminds me of somebody, but she's got a really a really powerful presence on screen. I thought she was great. Yeah, yeah, I thought she I thought she was too. I thought I thought she did a really good job. I I was confused about how I mean, it was bizarre because I, it, the film starts out very much uh, casting her as the protagonist of the film. But right. then about a third of the way through, we really stop even having very much to do with Amanda for a, a large chunk of the film. And we just kind of switch to the, the talkie character played by Jeremy and which was, which was great because I mean, he's equally as fascinating of a character, but I was, I was curious about why we just completely, almost completely abandoned the Amanda character there. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't really speak to that. I, I noticed the same thing. I was sort of like, oh, it's happening to Amanda. But I mean, at the same time, I also had been, while we were with Amanda so long, I'd been going, what the fuck is up with the fucking panda guys? Exactly. Um, you know, um, and, and of course, that's when we meet uh, the great Michael St. Michaels, uh, <laughs> who I was like, oh, shit, he's in this? This is great. Um, of, of course, from The Greasy Strangler, which Absolutely. we all know and love. Um but yeah, I really, I, I liked that whole, you know, sort of B plot. Uh, again, I'm not sure how any of it ties into anything else, but it's yeah. totally captivating. Uh, and, yeah. and they're, and Michael St. Michaels is fantastic. Jeremy Gardner, as always is fantastic. Uh, they're both totally captivating. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting. The film sort of, it, it feels at times like you're walking through a forest and at times the film just like takes you down one path for like 30 minutes. And then all of a sudden says, Oh, never mind. We're going back to this other path. And then we go back to that other yeah. one. And uh, that, that's kind of how it felt to me. It's, it's uh, a little bit disjointed, but again, I'm not saying that is a bad thing. I, I, I yeah, liked yeah. that. It, it made me, while I was watching this, I just kept thinking, man, I'm so glad to be watching a movie that's keeping me on my toes and is keeping me guessing and is, is, formatted differently than other movies that I watch. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and a film that I think is doing the absolute best it can with what is obviously a very minimal budget. Yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely, you know, I, I, I love that it was filmed in clearly filmed in Florida, you yeah. know, uh, I, I love regional films. I love movies that, um, you know, look like they were filmed in the place where they were filmed. So it looked hot. It looked sweaty. Uh, you know, it looked uh, it, it wasn't filmed in like Miami Beach, Florida. It was filmed in like, you know, backwoods, central Florida. Um, it was probably filmed in Jeremy Gardner's backyard, which is totally possible. Um, I have to I do have to shout out Christian Stella um, for the cinematography. Uh, of course, Christian Stella and Jeremy Gardner were the, the team that made the battery. 
Um, they recently made the wonderful After Midnight, which is out right now, which yeah. if you haven't seen it, you should. Um, but I, I, I uh, Christian is a really fantastic cinematographer, and I thought that uh, he did a really great job capturing this weird film in a pretty beautiful way. Yeah, and how about one filmmaking team shouting out another filmmaking team? Uh, I hope everybody noticed the uh, backwards Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson tank top in the film. Oh gosh, I did not notice that. Yeah, Jeremy's wearing it one of the scenes. He's got it on. He's got it on inside out, and it's it's Aaron Moorhead. Oh, that is really Benson. funny. Oh, I didn't notice that. I got to rewatch their faces, and then it just says Moorhead and Benson. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's it that's was a great. it was a nice little throw, and that's something I did really appreciate about the film was sort of all the little touches. Like you're not nothing is going to get to me like having a grown man drink beer in a teacup. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, in fact, I was thinking at that, I was like, I think I've seen Jeremy drink beer out of a teacup. <laughs> that seems um, like a very Jeremy thing. To do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there there were lots of little touches in this. Like I, I, I thought I really actually thought the guy playing Walter. Uh, Stan Madre. Um, I thought he was <laughs> phenomenal. He I mean, you know, he was so it was so funny and so sweet and like heartbreaking. And this poor guy. I mean, can you imagine not knowing why people are appearing at your house and are cutting off your fingers one by <laughs> I, one? I know. I mean, it's talk talk about being given like a, you know, a a. I don't know, a set of character circumstances. I mean, told this is what's happening to you. Go. And then without spoiling it to find, I mean, just say there's a reveal at the end without giving it away with his character about what's been happening and why that's just. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's perfect. It's... That, that to me, you know, and again, it's so hard. Like everybody go watch the movie. Cause I, I want to talk about it with you. The second I finished this, which was like at 6am today or something, I was like, Oh my God, I can't wait to talk about this fucking movie with somebody because I feel like, I feel like the end of the film, it really does wrap everything up for me in, in a nice, you know, pretty, pretty decent bow. You yeah. know, it, it, it tells us everything that's been going on, but at the same time, it also doesn't give us any answers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is like pretty wild. Uh, and, and I think evidence of pretty good screenwriting and pretty good, uh, you know, and, and great direction is that is that, OK, it wraps everything up and we feel fulfilled as an audience. But we still don't necessarily have to know the logic of what was going on. Uh, yeah. it, and, and so it felt pretty like Lynchian to me in that way. Absolutely. And you, yeah, the, the Lynch influences are are definitely there. And, um, and and as well as some other filmmakers that we might talk about in in the next segment, yeah. Um, but you know, I I did like this is a film that I would recommend. It's a film that I enjoyed watching. I'm glad that I saw it. I'm glad that it exists because I I love perverse little pieces of art like this, and I don't think we get enough of them, frankly. Um, there were a couple of things that that did bug me about the film that to me are worth discussing. One of them was, and I don't blame the composer because it was obvious that he's a really talented guy, but I just thought there was too much, there was too much music through the film and the music seemed a little disjointed to me. Um, um yeah, I, I, I feel like I know what you mean. It didn't bother me really. Um, it, there was definitely some stuff where it felt pretty, you know, dramatic where I noticed the music and maybe that's not necessarily a good thing is when you notice the music in a film. Uh, sure. but I don't know. I, I, I thought it was pretty good. I, I have to admit that because I was watching this at like five or six in the morning, I did have the volume down really low. So, sure, sure. <laughs> so, so maybe I didn't get the full effect of it. Um, 
I think part that, of it that was didn't really me, flag for me. I think part of it was for me is that I think when when it was like when the music was more upbeat and driving the narrative, it worked for me. But then there were these moments where he was like it was being brought down and trying to be like really tender and dramatic. That's the pieces I think that didn't work for me <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as much as the other stuff, which I thought was available. Like the music at the opening, I thought was great. And there's some stuff that really works. I think it was just when it was trying to be a little more dramatic, it felt a little hokey to me. Sure. Um, yeah. But, you know, again, though, that was a minor gripe. The only real gripe I would say that I have is, and this is something, this is not new to Fingers. It is not new to this film. It is something that a lot of films do and deal with. But to me, if you're going to use the F word, and by F word, I mean faggot, mm-hmm. which if you're going to use that word, you better have a good reason to use it. And especially now to me, that's a word that I'm really uh, aware of when it's used, particularly, you know, not just because technically I am one, but just because I feel (laughs) like, I do feel like that if you're going to use that word, okay, use it, but I want you to, to come like guns loaded with a great reason why you're using it. Like, don't just throw it in in some like sort of passive way. And yeah, I guess you could say it pays off like to some extent because of what the, the Jer- what Jeremy's character, you know, does. But it's like at the end of the day, that, that adds nothing to the script. It adds nothing to those characters. It really doesn't even make sense for one character to even defend, you know, defend or, or go against the guy for using it based on some stuff he says later. It just felt like a really sloppy way to use that word. Um, yeah, I definitely know what you're talking about. Um, I, uh, well, my mic got really loud all of a sudden. Hold on. <laughs> Damn. I was like, shit. Um, gonna come down a little bit. I have like an automatic mic control on my thing. Uh, oh. and so it, I guess it was quiet for a while. Um, anyway, sorry about that. It was just like okay. shouting in my ears. It's um, live podcasting, everybody. Live podcasting. Fuck it. We'll do it live. Um, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about you know it obviously i don't necessarily have the exact same history with that word as you do um and and we all have different uh we actually talked about this on the screen draft kid venture draft um and and so like i totally respect like like when they said it i went oh okay wow all right bold choice um it felt to me a little bit like uh like 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 when and this is gonna I'm probably gonna back myself into a corner here, but it felt to me a little bit like when um like when Tarantino uses the n-word and how he's kind of using it to establish the vernacular of the way that people talk um that it was uh that it felt like it felt like just a, a sort of little slice of life for me of of these two characters of like, this is just kind of how they talk um, and, and less about, I'm going to make a point. Now, having said that, I think that today it's very important to, if you're going to choose to use these words, you do have to have a meaning behind them and you have to have a point behind it. So I think that there was no, like, I don't know, this isn't the right word, but like malice, you know, no, no, I certainly didn't feel, I didn't certainly feel like it was a malicious choice. I felt like exactly what you just said, which is that I think the the writer or and the director, who I guess we should mention Juan Ortiz, um, uh, I don't think he was doing anything malicious. I think it was he was trying to say, well, this is how these this is where these characters are from. This is how they talk, and I'm actually okay with that. I don't mind people using that word. 
I just want, if you're going to use that word, use it responsibly and use it in a way that either further, that, that does more than just adds this like surface layer to a character. Yeah. Makes sense. I get it. Um, I, I and, and I don't disagree, but they use it once. It's not like it's a, it's a thing that's repeated. It's, it's, you know, and again, this is a film that is trying to be subversive. It is trying to be, you know, uh, you know, fucked up and weird and wild. And, you know, so in that respect, I appreciate the fact that they're throwing everything to the, to the, you know, to the wall to see what sticks. And so I do appreciate it on some level just because of the craziness of it. But that was just one of those areas. And it happens like, again, this is, it's not just something that this film is guilty of. Lots of films still do it. And all the time and indie films, mainstream films, you know, it's not as prevalent now as it was say, you know, in the eighties and nineties when it popped up in just about every other film that came out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely different now than, than it was. And, and enough. So where I was surprised to hear the word said, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, which I guess is maybe good in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely. 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 But yeah, you know, I, Again, the perversion of this film, which is really what worked for me as someone who grew up loving, you know, who grew up loving like your John Waters and your, you know, David Lynch and all these other filmmakers who were kind of on a different wavelength than everyone else. Um, This film had a very like guerrilla renegade feeling to it, which I think you get with some independent films, which to me is what makes them endearing. I like a film that feels like it was sort of scrapped together by a group of friends and, you know, and, and I, I, this is just a great example of that. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, yeah, the, the whole time I was watching this movie, I was like, okay, I can see the 10 person crew, you know, I can see uh, everybody all hands on deck helping to make that movie, which is movies that I have made. I mean, I, th- these are movies that I love. Um, and, uh, and so I liked it for that. It felt very homegrown and it felt very cared about uh, for that reason. Yeah, uh, you know, like I, like we said, doesn't make a goddamn lick of sense. <laughs> well, but that's okay. But that's okay. It's okay that everything doesn't. Yeah, some. I mean, it's not that it doesn't make sense. It's just that it. I think it's more the narr- I think it's more the way the structure of the narrative works than anything else because it is so. It is so back and forth, and it keeps jumping around to all these different like, particularly with the Amanda character. Like she goes from being this really, you know beaten down person from these sort of like phobias she has to like almost suddenly getting this like epiphany and then like turning her life around through this Dr. Scotty character who would, to me was the most bizarre, confusing character in the movie, Dr. Oh Scotty. My God. I loved it. I loved him. It, it was so weird. Uh, it, he reminded me a lot of, uh, of the chiropractor character in Jacob's ladder. I, I, I see that. I know. What you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, I liked him. He also had a little bit of a, uh, oh my God, I'm, oh my God, I'm blinking on the name. Help me, Moff Gideon. Oh, um, uh, Giancarlo, uh, Giancarlo Esposito. Yes, thank you, thank you. Yeah, he had a little bit of that vibe going, uh, which is fun. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I liked him, and it was weird because, like, from the beginning, the minute that you meet somebody who's immediately peddling their book to you is pretty great. Yeah, yeah, and... <laughs> And what was the name of the book? It was something like ridiculously straightforward. Oh, it was like, you need me. Yes. It's like, you need me. I can help. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's great. (laughs) I, I, yeah, there's a humor to this movie. There's an inherent like uh, chuckle 
that is infused in every frame of this movie, which I love. You know, it's it's uh, certainly taking itself seriously in terms of the plot and like it's not a spoof or something. Uh, but there's kind of a lighthearted nature, like a chuckle that I felt kind of bubbling underneath the whole film. Yeah, and a lot of that has to do with, and I want to focus mostly because I do think I think Jeremy Gardner's performance is pretty fantastic. I mean, yeah, he's wonderful. He's re- a lot is required of him in this film, and and most of the standout scenes I would say probably involve his character, and uh, he just rolls with it. Like his his comic timing is just fantastic. His ability to turn on a dime and just switch to that sort of menacing. Uh, tone is is great like he really does carry uh, this film in a lot of ways and well well and he goes from menacing to that kind of simpering you know weak character that he yeah. when he encounters buckle st michael's you know it's and and, and and again there's kind of a clownishness to the whole thing and i mean that in a very good way there's there's an acknowledgement of we're living in this sort of bizarre surreal world uh and, and there's a little bit of a comment on that uh, which which I appreciated. Yeah, no, abs- absolutely, and uh, and you get that a lot through the film, which was which was actually really appreciated. And there are moments, and, and this was such a tiny moment, but there's a moment where the two guys are with Walter, and they're at his house, and there's a knock at the door, and the camera pans to the door and then pans back, and Jeremy's character is like doing this weird, crazy slink from. <laughs> the bedroom <laughs> to the hallway. Like no one can see them, but it's just the way he's doing this slink. Like I laughed for two minutes because it was just so it was clown. It was almost clownish and it worked really well. Yeah. It's this weird world that this movie inhabits where these characters can act in this kind of strange, bizarre way. Um, it, it, he actually reminded me at times like um, I, this is not a movie I'm going to talk about in the next segment, but um, of the character of, I think his name is Hans in Possession, uh, the huh. the boyfriend. Um, are you familiar with Zalowski's Possession? I am. I am indeed. Okay. Uh, um, so you know the boy, I don't know if it's Hans, I can't remember his name. But the, to, we're not, oh, hold on, let's see. Um, I'll tell you. We're talking about the Sam Neill, Isabella, Johnny film. Absolutely. And uh, let's see, who is, is it Heinrich? Heinrich, thank you. There Heinrich. you go. Yeah, Heinrich. Of, of how, you know, he's he's doing these bizarre dances um, and it's really weird, but somehow it fits with the tone of the film. That's how I felt about uh, the stuff that Jeremy was doing in this, where you yeah. would see him doing that weird slink. Um, it certainly wasn't to the extent that Zalowski has Heinrich doing, but sure. uh, it, 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 it felt right with the tone of the film, with the universe that we're in. And it really helped, in my opinion, to... Uh, really, re- really help us sink into what what this world was. This this weird like alternate dimension was. Yeah, it's an alternate dimension, but you could also just read it as it's Florida. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> it's Florida. Where else would any of this happen but Florida? True. <laughs> well, I, it sounds like Graham and I both enjoyed this film, and it sounds like we would both recommend it to folks. Um, I know I sure would. Oh, absolutely. As I was watching it, I was going, I'm so glad I get to talk to Billy Ray about this because if anybody that I know that's going to love this movie too, it's going to be Billy Ray. Um, you know, I, I can I can see how maybe people wouldn't be into this, sure. but I think that that would only be because you aren't able to get on board with the, with the tone. You know, absolutely. the tone is a thing that you have to really be able to slide into. And, you know, and, and for, for a movie that is as violent as it is, it doesn't show a lot of it. No, no, it's not. It's not 
you know, I hate this term, but torture porn or anything not, not like at that. All. Like, you know, you, it's you, like you know Walter's losing fingers, but you don't see a lot of it. Like you, it, the way they shoot it, and the, it's 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 very sort of the camera camera's not looking at the action going on when the violence is happening, which to me is always generally just as effective. I mean, obviously sometimes you just want to watch blood and guts. Um, like yeah, no, it's fans. yeah, no, it's it's shot very smartly. Um, uh, they they choose their shots you know, in a, in a very intelligent way. And, and I think they tell the story in a pretty economical way, uh, you know, and I'm sure that a lot of that came about from having a low budget and having to be economical with your shots. Cause you don't have a, much time to shoot, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but I thought they did a really good job. It, it, it all looked good. And, and yeah, with the gore and all that, they, they turn away at just the right moments. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Um, well, if you've heard us blathering on about Fingers and you think you want to check it out, luckily for you, it is currently available on Shudder. Uh, so if you don't have Shudder, which you should, because Shudder is amazing, uh, you should pop on there so you can check out uh, Fingers. Is Sequence Break still on Shudder? Sequence Break is currently on Shudder. So you can check out Graham's film on uh, Shudder as well. So there's just Make so it a double good. bill. Make it a double bill. And uh, Oh, man, next, that would be a weird double bill. Uh, fingers and... Se- well, they're both body horror. Sure, they're both body yeah, horror. It could just, be a good body you know, horror double feature. Yeah, drop some acid and do that. Or have a nice glass of wine and enjoy a delicious steak dinner. <laughs> both work. Um, up next, we are going to talk about the films that we think might have inspired this film after a short break from our sponsor. We are back, and it is now time for the part of the show where Graham and I discuss the films that we think might have, possibly did, could have influenced the film that we just reviewed, Fingers. And uh, this is what we call the gravy part of the show. The first part was the movie. Now it's time for the gravy. Graham, you know, like Billy, Billy Ray, is this cream gravy or brown gravy? You know, me and Drea had this discussion uh, on episode one, and maybe we should talk gravy in every episode. Uh, for me, this is brown gravy, but for you, given your state currently, it might be red eye gravy. Oh, the, well, red eye gravy is good. Uh, I I would love to have some coffee right now. Uh, I got to say, though, the only real kind of gravy is cream gravy. Oh, man, I, I would I would have to disagree. I would have to say it's your brown gravy. When I was in college, my mother at one point came up and cooked chicken fried steak for my whole dorm. And, of course, that drew the attention of all of the uh, neighboring dorm rooms. And everybody came in. And there was this one guy, my friend Paul, who I remember walked up. My mom was making cream gravy from scratch. And he said, oh, you know, what's in that? And she goes, oh, you never had cream gravy? And he said, no, I grew up in California. And, And she said, you don't want to know what's in this. <laughs> <laughs> what a lovely thing to hear. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> and it was, de- and he said, well, it's delicious. It's delicious. You know, I think gravy might be the most perfect food. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a perfect condiment. It makes everything fattier, more savory, more wonderful. Uh, it works in all cultures. I mean, I've had amazing gravy in Japanese food and Chinese food, uh, certainly American food. So basically what we're saying is, is on this podcast with gravy in the title, we like gravy. I mean, now I'm really, I, there's a Cracker Barrel down the highway from me. I'm oh, wondering man. if I should just 
fucking go to Cracker Barrel after this. Oh, that Cracker Barrel gravy. Oh, that's right. You're in a place where there are Cracker Barrels now. Fuck California. <laughs> okay. Here we go. We're going to dive into this madness right now. So I'll, I'll say this. When I was thinking, what I usually do for this podcast, when I say usually do, this is our second episode. So obviously I do it a lot. When I'm watching the film, anytime a movie pops in my head for any reason, I'll just write it down. I'll make a master list. And then when the film's over, I'll think for a while and think if I need to add anything else. And then I'll just kind of cull it down to the three that I think, to me, most resonated with me when I was watching the film. Yeah, that's exactly what I did as I was watching. I just kept keeping a list of movies that popped into my head. And then at the end, I went, oh, okay, well, these are the ones that I think uh, are the, are the most uh, ubiquitous for the film. Yeah. And so I'm going to kick us off uh, with the first film uh, that popped into my mind. And this might be the most obvious film, mm-hmm. but that's okay. Um, this film was obviously inspired to some degree by the work of John Waters. And the film that popped into my head almost immediately when watching this film was his 1970 film, Multiple Maniacs. Oh, sure. Yeah, that, that was not the John Waters film that popped into my head, but uh, certainly Waters two. all over the place. Yeah, I had two pop in my head, and one was this, and one was, uh, well, I won't mention the other in case you may, might, might mention it. Um, but uh, for folks who have not seen this, this stars the impossibly amazing Lady Divine as the owner of a show called The Cavalcade of Perversion, which is basically all about fetish acts and perversions. There's this... uh, Well, it's also the name of your apartment, right? Correct, correct. It is the name of my apartment. uh, And so uh, if you hear that, guys, I'm single. And uh, there is also... There's an obscenity that's part of it called The Puke Eater. And um, so anyway, Lady Divine uh, is uh, married to this guy named Mr. David and uh, starts thinking that he might be having an affair and so she's going to go, well, actually, actually, I've already skipped over this. So the end of the, the main show is, is that they rob all their patrons. But then she steps that up at some point. Instead of robbing the patrons, she wants to just start murdering them. And so eventually she finds out that her uh, uh, husband, boyfriend, Mr. David, is having an affair. She's going to go confront him and kill him. But then she is met uh, by, on her way there, she is raped <laughs> by a couple of, by a couple of men and uh, is met by the infant of Prague. It ends with basically her being uh, raped by a giant lobster. <laughs> I mean, obviously. It is a crazy fucking movie. It might be the craziest movie John Waters ever made. It's also one of my favorite for the same reason that I responded to Fingers, which is it is all about doing as much crazy shit as you possibly can and seeing if you can somehow make it sort of cohese together. And I don't know that John Waters was any more successful about making his films make sense as Fingers was, but it really wasn't about that so much. It, it was to a large degree about the shock and about the the fun of it. And this is a fun movie. Yes, it's dark. There's murder and rape and all of this violence. But at, the, at its core, it's actually a really fun film, which is really helped by Divine's performance, which is always just something to behold and it's got his usual cavalcade of actors you've got david lockery and mary vivian pierce meet stole edith massey it, it it's just if you haven't experienced and a lot of people in the new generation of cinephiles are not familiar with the work of john waters and i find that to be really unfortunate because i think he still has such a monumental place in the evolution of film over the last you know 50 years 
And so if you are not familiar with his work, I think this is honestly, people say usually the most tame work of a director is the best entry point into John Waters. Uh Uh-uh. You want to start with the crazy shit. So start with Multiple Maniacs. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah. So start with Multiple Maniacs and then go forward. Um, Yeah, this is a great pick. I uh, Have I ever told you that I once served a glass of wine to John Waters? You haven't. I did. I, I, uh, my, at my college Fordham, the, every year, the, uh, uh, sorry, let me readjust my headphones here. Um, every year, my, the senior class of my acting school Fordham would have a, uh, like a senior, I don't know, for lack of a better word, a recital, they would all do a scene from a show. And I, this was when I was like a sophomore or something like that. And I was, uh, tending bar, and I was serving free wine and beer to people. And this guy came up and asked for a glass of Chardonnay. And I looked up and it was John Waters. Oh. Uh, and I lost my shit. Uh, he was very nice, very kind, tipped well. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. So I think that this is a great pick uh, regarding John Waters. I think that, uh, you know, I obviously thought of John Waters too. He's a filmmaker that uses all the same actors, all of his films feel very homegrown. They're all very brave. Uh, They all don't stick to like any kind of a narrative construct that we're used to, uh, which is something that I really appreciated with this film. Uh, I think that it's super weird. Uh, It's, it feels a little dirty, you know, it feels a little dangerous, um, which is something that obviously John Waters is uh, uh, adept at. Um, yeah, I, I I like this pick a lot. I had you know thought of John Waters. I had thought of Pink Flamingos, but um, that that wasn't one of my picks because I knew you were going to pick John Waters. Uh, so I have, I have different films, but um, but I think that uh, yeah, people haven't checked out Waters stuff. They should. Um, it's obvious Juan Ortiz did. Um, oh, absolutely. And- I, I, can't, I cannot imagine him having not seen a Waters film. And the other film I was thinking about that popped in my head was actually Desperate Living. But the only reason I went with this over that one is because this one has Divine. And if you're going to talk about John Waters in the context of something being fucked up and crazy, it needs to have Divine in it. It has to have Divine. It has to, yeah. Well, that was my first pick. Graham, it's over to you. All right. Well, you know, I'm going to go in sort of a similar direction to you. Um, Talking homegrown. Talking Southern. Uh, this is a movie that, I don't know, Billy Ray, you might have actually been an actor in this film. Uh, <laughs> but the first film that I thought about was Harmony Corinne's 1997 debut, Gummo. Okay. Um, uh, Gummo, I, I don't, if you haven't seen Gummo, uh, go watch Gummo. It's a very weird experience. Um, it's essentially a sort of slice of life. Um, in and around Nashville, Tennessee, or no, sorry, it was shot in Tennessee. Um, takes place in Ohio, um, and and it's a town that has been previously destroyed by a tornado. Uh, and it follows all these various characters. Um, it it you know none of the actors were like professional actors. Uh, a lot of these townspeople uh, were sort of just filmed. Uh, kind of cinema verite, um, and and it ends up giving this like bizarre melange of of uh, of of life in this little town. Uh, obviously, Harmony Corinne is a. Uh, I should also say Chloe Sevigny is in this, yes. um, and uh, 
Yeah, you know, Harmony Korine is obviously, a, a, again, a very specific filmmaker. Like, he makes very specific films. And I think that kind of echoes what you were saying about John Waters, uh, where, you know, we're talking about, about these filmmakers that they have their own voice. They're not interested in telling any kind of a conventional story. Uh, and, and so they do their own thing. Um, and, and, and I feel like Harmony Corinne does that with Gummo, obviously John Waters, that's his whole career. And I feel like that's what Juan Ortiz was doing with, uh, with fingers. You know, he, he's not telling, this is not a slasher movie. You know, this is not, um, like, like we said, when it was first starting, I thought, oh, this is going to be like a strangers thing, but it wasn't even that. Um, it was something totally different and totally unexpected. Um, I think also like the Florida setting, uh, the weird characters, um, you know, the, the lack of, of people that we recognize, um, the, you know, I, I think, I think the moment when I wrote this down was when, um, Amanda, yeah, Amanda, um, is talking about the, the short, black man that she's afraid of because he's short and he's black. Um, and he, and this really amazing actor like comes out and he is a very, very short man. You know, he's yeah. like, you know, five feet maybe. Um, and, and I went, Oh, this is, you know, this reminds me a lot of gummo uh, because he does find these kids that are, you know, totally like, uh, I don't know. They're out of the backwoods, man. They're, 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 they're the not a dwarf as well. Yes. Yes. Um, so I don't know. I thought of Gummo. Um, I uh, I really love Gummo. It's super weird. I've only seen it twice. I don't think I ever need to see it see it again. Um, but highly recommended. And if you want weird indie cinema, check out Gummo. Yeah, uh, this is a great choice, and it, it is crazy to me now that you when you mention this. Harmony Corinne never popped in my head once, and it it he made it makes so much sense. Like so many of his films could honestly work as a possible influence because he is very similar in a lot of ways to John Waters. I think in the way he approaches his filmmaking, and in just kind of the no holds barred, like reckless abandon that he goes in with. And uh, I, I think Gummo, I think you nailed it though. I think this is kind of a, a great distillation of, of and. You know, a, a shout out to the late Linda Manns, who is also oh, in sure. film, um, from one of my favorite films of all time, Days of Heaven. And um, yeah, the, I, I really, really dig this film. I haven't seen it in so long. I'm kind of like you. It's one of those films, like a lot of Harmony Corinne's earlier films, like Kids is also not a movie that I need to rewatch, you know, frequently because they're just so, they're so authentic and they have this, but they have this sort of like emotional drain quality to them. Mm, yeah and and so i it, it but i i remember absolutely loving this film and um i i, I think of it often but i just don't rewatch it well i mean why would you <laughs> it's hard to watch you know it's not it's not an easy watch and and i think that that that's a little bit what separates it from fingers fingers is a little bit more fun than gummo is sure um sure. you know but but yeah yeah i'm glad i'm glad that you 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 see what I'm talking about with, with Corinne, especially with this movie. It's a, it's a weird, it's a weird amalgam of like, just non-conventional storytelling, you yeah. know, yeah. like Gummo is not telling a, a narrative like we're used to seeing. It's, it's a weird, you know, hour and a half when you're sitting there like consumed in this bizarro world that you don't really want to be in. 
but you're totally consumed by it. Um, and at the end of it, you're like, oh, God, I'm glad I'm out of it. I want to take a shower. Uh, but it was a great movie, you know? Yeah, you know, Harmy Corinne is one of those filmmakers. I, I really do have a love-hate relationship with him because, you know, I loved kids. I was a big fan of Gummo, but honestly didn't respond to a single film he made after that until the film that is probably one of his most derided of recently, The Beach Bum, which I absolutely loved. You know, I actually haven't seen it. Yeah, and I, I just not, you know, Trash Humpers, even Spring Breakers, like, I, I just, I haven't been able to get into any of his recent output until Beach Bum, and I was just blown away by it. It was my like, top three of the year when it came out. And um, so he's very hit and miss for me, but I think when he's firing and just his sensibilities are so beautiful on screen. Oh, yeah. I mean, he he has, you know, it's it's again, I feel, I feel like, remember how there was like a, a, I don't know, there was like a saying back in the 70s when Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out where people were like, oh, you know, when you're watching The Exorcist, you feel like you're in the hands of a master. And when you're watching The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you feel like you're in the hands of a madman. Um, and it made the film that much more scary. Um, I feel that way about Harmony Corinne. You know, I, I'm I, he's he's certainly a brilliant filmmaker, um, but I feel like I'm in the hands of a madman. Yeah, which makes watching his films uh, really exciting. And I truly don't know what I'm going to get. Like I, I, and that is a thing that I really look for when I'm watching movies at all. Is I just want to be surprised. You know, I just want somebody to show me something that either I haven't seen before or that I wasn't expecting. And I feel like Harmony Corinne gives me that pretty much every time I watch a film of his. Um, I haven't seen The Beach Bum yet. I, I want to. Um, I think my favorite of his films, I think I prefer Gummo to Kids and Spring yeah, Breakers. I, can, I think I, I do. I can see that. It feels a little more pure to me. But I mean, all those all those movies are great, you know. Yeah, he he's definitely in that category of like filmmakers with like zero fucks to give in a lot of ways. I put Lars von Trier in that same category. Yes, hundred percent. And um, so yeah, I think this was a great choice. I think your first choice was a great one. Well, it's all downhill from here, Billy Ray. Well, same here. Uh, stop listening now, folks. It's not worth your while. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm going to move on to my next choice, which um is a bit of an under-the-radar flick uh, that hopefully, uh, I I'm hoping you've seen, but not entirely sure. Um, when I was thinking about this film, I started thinking about it in terms of, like, in pretty, like, you know, on-the-nose terms of, like, what are movies about losing appendages and losing body parts? Mm -hmm. And one immediately popped into my mind uh, from 2015, uh, it is a film by um, a filmmaker that uh, I, I am always excited about anything he puts out, uh, Owner to Kel. And the film is Applesauce. Oh, I never saw this. Yeah. Applesauce is a dark, crazily dark film about um, a character. It's about four, it's about four characters, two couples, um, that uh, get into a discussion about the worst things that they've ever done. And it starts out basically with this character of Ron, who owner to who directed the film and wrote it also plays, uh, is on the phone with this radio DJ played by Dylan Baker, who's asking people, what are the worst things that they've ever done? And he's about to tell him 
but then he gets cut off and, and brought and brought back to the living room with, by his wife. And they've got some friends over, played by Max Casella, uh, also known as uh, Timon from The Lion King. I was about to say Timon. Yeah, and Jennifer Prediger, an amazing indie actress. And um, they start then having a discussion about the worst things they've ever done. And he confides in them that he once severed the fingers of a saxophone player. And it's an incident that has just been haunting him for like 20 years. And so it brings up this question of what your darkest deed is. And it sets off this sort of like chain reaction amongst all four of these people uh, where they start looking at each other differently and want, and they start looking at themselves differently. And what even amps that up is, is the Ron character starts receiving body parts in the mail. He receives this severed finger in his mailbox. He then finds a foot in his laundry and then at some point he even finds a hacked off penis in the Chinese food that he's had delivered. <laughs> and it's just a crazy movie that honestly has a weird emotional resonance to it, even though all of this crazy fucked up stuff is happening. And Owner Tekel is really great at uh, creating these very unlikable protagonists. And sending them down these just insanely fucked up dark roads. And, you know, he did it in Summer with Blood, Summer of Blood, which is a movie where he plays uh, a vampire. And he does it in a film called Catfight with Sandra Oh. Uh, he's just a really, really impressive filmmaker that I, I, I wish his stuff was getting more and more attention than it is. He's great. He's big on the festival scene and in the indie film world, but he hasn't really reached that mainstream audience yet. And um, if you're a fan of Fingers, or even if you like a lot of the ideas of Fingers, but maybe think it's a little too fucked up for you, or, or if you're a fan, or if you're a fan of the movie Fingers too, yes, yes, or the movie Fingers, um, I think this film will work for you. And you know, Dylan Baker's great in a supporting role, and it, it's just a great cast. It's a it's a really fun film. And apart from the whole like severed fingers correlation between the two. Um, I think it does deal with uh, in similarities with like, you know, people thinking of themselves as monsters and how do I get over that and how do I overcome that feeling? Um, yeah. Wow. I mean, this sounds great. I've heard nothing but great things about this movie since it came out. Um, I don't have any particular reason why I haven't seen it. Just haven't caught it yet. Uh, but I, I hear it's wonderful and, uh, your description, Makes me want to immediately put it at the top of my queue. Yeah, it's great, and and you know I, again, you know a lot of part what part of this show is about discovering new folks and uh, and new filmmakers for for people who aren't familiar with them. And it, if anyone is not familiar with Owner Tekel, it is it is definitely uh, worth your while to check out all of his stuff wherever you can find it. I, I know Applesauce. If you've got Tubi, I know it's available for free on Tubi. Um. And, but his other stuff is available all over the place. He's directed a few films. He directed Catfight, uh, uh, Black Magic for White Boys, uh, Summer of Blood, uh, The Misogynist. He's got a lot of great films. And so, uh, yeah, check him out. Nice. 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 I will. Well, that's my number two choice, Graham. It's it's up to you now. Bring, bring us into the second one. Well, the second one, this will be appropriate. You know, I started with Gummo, which was Harmony Corinne's first feature. Uh, now I'm going into a film, which is this filmmaker's second feature. Um, and, uh, you know, I was thinking a lot about tone uh, and 
trying to to think of like because I think tone in fingers is uh, is very present. It's it's a very unique tone that it has, um, and so that made me think of Yorgos Lanthimos's Dog Tooth. Yes, um, Dog Tooth uh, from two thousand nine um, is is again Yorgos Lanthimos, who I, I guess most people know him from The Lobster. I guess, or or yeah. perhaps um, what was his most recent one? Uh, oh, uh, the favorite. Favorite, thank you. Um, Dogtooth, um, or, or of course, uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is my personal favorite Lanthimos film. Uh, but Dogtooth um, is about a family who has uh, kept their son, their adult son, and two adult daughters um, living in this uh, sort of compound uh, th- their whole lives. They've never left. And um, th- they have zero knowledge of the outside world. Um, and the parents uh, keep telling them that they'll be ready to leave once they lose a dog tooth, um, which which they are, of course, yet to grow because we don't have dog teeth. Um, and uh, there's there's all these. It, it's really interesting. You know, it's all about like how do we grow up, you know, and learn about sexuality when we're only around our family? Um, you know, the father at one point pays a, a coworker of his, this woman to come and sleep with his son. Um, you know, the, the daughters um, are also feeling, you know, all these sexual urges and, you know, end up, end up sleeping with each other. Um, it, it's, it's all really, it's really interesting and it's darkly funny. Um it's uh, a little violent. There's some gore to it. Um, but again, there's like a humor underneath the whole thing. And I think that's what resonated with me in terms of this film is, is the idea of like, we're watching this quirky, weird horror movie, uh, but there's this bubbling undercurrent of humor, um, a very dark, dark humor. Um, and, and so that rang true for me with dog tooth. Um, yeah, this movie, uh, this movie's wild. Uh, this movie, I think, exemplifies Yorgos Lanthimos's sensibilities as a filmmaker. Um, he has a very specific voice to him, and I, f- I feel like Ortiz has a similar voice, just in terms of, you know, not sticking certainly to convention, but also not to... I'm trying to think of what the right word is. Uh, not sticking to... To like conventional voice, yeah, you know, exactly. uh, uh, his his dialogue is not natural. Um, everything has this has this blanket of surreality to it, yeah. uh, and that's what Lanthimos does with his films. Um, the thing about Dogtooth versus his other films is Dogtooth is the most homegrown feeling of his films. It's very indie, For you sure. know. It it feels like a bunch of people at a house over a couple weeks shooting a movie, um, and that's what Fingers felt like to me. Um, so that is why my second film that I chose is 2009's Dogtooth. Yeah, uh, another great choice. Um, I, I I also thought of Dogtooth. It was one of the films that I wrote down when I was watching it. I think for me, it was more of an it was it was an energy thing. And we talked mm, about it in yeah. the first episode. Is sometimes you're watching a film and you just re- recall the energy of another film, and they sort of kind of sync up. And that's what it was for me. Is I definitely got that. This is his most homegrown film. And I still think, honestly, I still think it's Lanthimos' best film. Um, I've enjoyed all of his stuff to varying degrees. I don't, I don't think he has made a bad movie, 
but this one to me is the one that still hits the hardest and and makes the most impact. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with you. I think this movie is great. I, I, again, really love Killing of a Sacred Deer, but again, that one's a little more specifically horror. So maybe that's why I gravitate to that one a little more. But um, every single movie he's made is fantastic. Uh, I love his stuff. And again, it goes back to this idea of not knowing what to expect. You know, yeah. like you, like you, you couldn't see this movie and then expect to see the favorite. But yeah. you love both of them, uh, and that's what I love about it. Um, he's he's extremely unique and a totally singular voice. And uh, I, I, if you haven't like, you know, dove into his work, you should. What's funny to me is the film we reviewed, Fingers, is about a woman who is terrified of abnormalities. And with these first four picks, with John Waters, Harmony Korine, Owner Tekel, and Yorgos Lanthimos, we have picked filmmakers who are sort of the abnormalities of huh. the film world. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, yeah. Which is which is interesting. Um, but yeah, that's a great choice. That's a great choice. Um, good job, Graham, kicking it off so far. Oh, man, I'm doing good. Well, again, I can still ruin it with the third pick. Just you wait. Well, um, I'm going to do my best to ruin mine with the third pick. Uh, this was a film. I I knew that I this was one of the first films that popped in my mind when I was watching it. And this is mainly for the correlations between the lead performance in this film and Jeremy Gardner's performance in Fingers, because I feel like he is borrowing a lot from this performance in great ways. And so my final choice is from 1987. It is the Coen Brothers Raising Arizona. Oh, okay. And uh, if you don't know Raising Arizona, where the, where the fuck have you been? It's about H.I. Uh, and Ed McDonough who uh, steal a baby. And <laughs> I'm laughing just thinking about the movie as I'm trying to describe it. If you don't know Raising Arizona, you've been living under a rock forever. It is the Coen Brothers' ultimate comedy masterpiece. Um, Nicolas Cage as H.I. McDonough is a revelation of physical comedy, comic timing, and clownish energy. It's his best It's his best performance, in my opinion. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I got so much of that from Jeremy's performance. I feel like he was channeling H.I. McDonough in some of those scenes. And, um, but the film isn't, it's not just that. I mean, this is a, this is a crazy film too. It's a crazy film about crime and about, you know, really kind of unscrupulous people doing, doing, you know, sometimes unscrupulous things. And, um, you know, so it, it has a lot in common with Fingers. It's certainly not as, as violent or as perverse as Fingers in any way, shape or form, but it also has that really, it, it walks that thin line with its comedy, which I feel like fingers also does uh, where there's a lot in this film that is really absurd and clownish, but then there's also stuff that's actually really, you know, sort of dramatic and impactful. And um, yeah, I, I raising Arizona is top 10 comedies of all time for me. And it really was maybe one of the one or two first films that popped in my mind when I was watching this mainly based on Jeremy's performance, because I do think there's so much there that, that harkens back to this film. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I love this movie. This is one of the you know best comedies ever made. I'm really glad that you went with like a straight comedy 
um, because uh, figures is very funny. It's a comedy. Um, it's, it's a, a black comedy, but it's a comedy. And I, you know, we've obviously been choosing either weird or weird verging on, on, uh, on horror uh, for our pick so far. So I'm glad you went with this. Um, I love the comparison of Jeremy and Nick Cage. Uh, and I think it's accurate and apt. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what to say about this movie aside from that. I mean, exactly. Really it's like, like it's, I'm not going to describe the plot of Raising Arizona. Most of you have probably seen Raising Arizona. And if you haven't, then, you know, you know what you have to watch tonight. You watch it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you're right. It's one of the greatest comedies of all time. Um, I don't know if it's the Cohen's best work. It might be. Um, I think it's up there. I don't know if it's their best work overall, but I think it's up there. Yeah, it's up there. Um, yeah, it's a great movie. This is a great pick. And and again, I think it just, I want to highlight how, how much I appreciate the comedy of fingers, you know, this, this weird, the weird comedy. And you certainly have to have a, a specific sense of humor, I think, to get the humor of fingers. I, th- I don't think everybody will get it um, in the same way as I don't think everybody would get the humor of Dogtooth. Or I don't think everybody, you know, maybe nobody, you know, not everybody would get the humor of Raising Arizona. Um, but it is funny. Uh, and and there's there's definitely a sensibility of that. So I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you made this pick. This is good. I didn't think of this at all, but it's perfect. Um, yeah, well done. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, I try to impress in all avenues. <laughs> you always do. Okay, here it is. Your final choice. What is the final film that you think inspired the film Fingers? Well, you know, <laughs> we're going from a cinematic classic like Raising Arizona. Um, <laughs> and we're going to another cinematic classic, um, which popped into my head at about five this morning when I was watching this movie. Um it is another feature film debut, Billy Ray. Ooh. And it is the feature film debut uh, from Marvel's Scott Derrickson oh. with Hellraiser 5 Inferno. <laughs> <laughs> um, so look, bear with me here. Um, the Hellraiser 5 Inferno came out in 2000, it was straight to video. Uh, it is the, the first of the Hellraiser films to go straight to video. Um, and of course, Scott Derrickson, who later, uh, became known for doing such amazing films as Sinister or Dr. Strange. Uh, this is his feature film debut. And the reason I chose this is as I was watching Fingers, um, I was really captivated by Amanda's journey of, of not being believed by anybody, um, and not believing her own head, you know, when she was uh, meeting Dr. Scotty or when she, um, you know, was was hearing from Walter about, oh, these things come and they take my fingers um, and, and sort of doubting her own sanity. In Hellraiser 5, Inferno, um, also known as Hellraiser Inferno. Yes. Um, uh same thing is going on with with the the main character his name is Joseph Thorne he's a corrupt detective um 
and uh, he he you know does all these he sleeps with all these women while he's on the job does all these drugs he's a really you know bad guy um, and then he starts to see these uh, these cenobites that are sort of coming out at him and 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 he starts to have these weird visions um, that are really disturbing to him and nobody believes him people keep telling him he needs to get help um, he's like no this is something supernatural uh, and and then of course by the end we realize that no in fact he fucked around with the puzzle box and all this is real um at the end of fingers uh you know without going into spoiler territory um i find that there's kind of a similar idea of playing with what is real what is not with somebody being afraid that they're losing their mind only to decide or only to discover that perhaps they're not actually going insane like they thought they were um uh, I, in particular, there's a scene with Dr. Scotty towards the end, um, w- which again uh, plays with this idea of of the reality of of the current situation. Yeah. Um, and it just it I, I don't know I you know we we sort of talked about Amanda at the beginning and how she kind of takes second place to Jeremy, um, you know, like halfway through the film, but then by the time she comes back, you know, she's a pretty significant like important character that that does. Um, some important things to the plot, uh, but but she's there's this like shadow over her of nobody believing her when she says, you know that one well one people think that she's just fucking nuts when she's yeah. like it really bothers me that this guy is losing his fingers. Um, but two, she's you know talking about this mysterious doctor. People are like, I haven't ever seen this doctor before. Is he even a real guy? Are you fucking nuts? Um, and and I I don't know it just it rang true with Hellraiser Inferno to me, um, which also you know is a movie that I, I I am a fan of the entire Hellraiser franchise. I did a whole episode about it uh, two days ago for uh, for Down in the Basement, um, yeah. and and I, I I really like all of them. I think that they're all really interesting. Um, obviously, for a number of reasons, there is a a sort of drop in quality that happens across the ten film franchise um but uh i think that movies like inferno you know which ostensibly were originally film you know uh, scripts written for for non-hellraiser films um that got sort of shoehorned in with pinhead um i think they work i think they're interesting um and i don't know when i thought of it i went well fuck it you know we don't talk about hellraiser inferno enough and why not yeah, I I'll I'll be honest. I was hoping for a good old fashioned uh, Graham Skipper pick, <laughs> and you did not fail to deliver with Hellraiser Inferno. Um, obviously, this did not pop into my head when I was watching the movie, but you've made a very compelling case for uh, uh, the correlation in some of the stuff between the films. Um, this was the what I like. What I I haven't seen this film in a very long time. I am also one of those people who doesn't shit on the Hellraiser franchise as much as a lot of other people. Um, Obviously, they do drop in quality. Obviously, some of the later ones you're not going to say are great films, but they all have interesting nuggets of an idea that they were able to just kind of build around the pinhead character or insert him into. Um, Inferno was the first non-theatrically released one, which is also very interesting about that one because up until Bloodline, they had all got at least some sort of theatrical release. And then I think Bloodline's failure sort of put the kibosh on that. Um, 
yeah, I, I, I remember enjoying Inferno. I remember thinking that Craig Sheffer made a really good asshole. He sure does. He sure um, does. Which, uh, you know, Craig Sheffer, I'm sure he's a lovely man in real life, but he makes a very good douchebag. Um, I'm, cur- I'm curious, did you think of any other Hellraiser films or just this one? It was specifically this one. Um, uh, because I, I feel like, I mean, Hellseeker uh, is also a little bit thematically similar in terms of not knowing what's real, what's not. Um, I think that this one, Inferno, is more successful than Hellseeker is. Um, I, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in Hellseeker, it's effectively the same thing where this guy, uh, you know, is experiencing all these horrible hallucinations and isn't sure what's real, what's not. And then turns out, oh, you know, all of this was done by Pinhead. Um, but somehow there's something a little bit more captivating to me about about uh, Inferno. Um that I think works more on a character level. I think uh, Craig, uh, Craig Sheffer, not Schaefer, right? Yeah. Craig yeah, Sheffer. Yeah. Um, I think Craig Sheffer, uh, I think he's a lot to blame for that or to blame. He's uh, to thank for that. Um, he's, he's really good. You know, he's an asshole detective, uh, but we start to care about him and what's going on to him uh, because the shit's really fucked up and weird. Yeah. Um, the other thing about Inferno specifically is that it's the most, surreal and Lynchian of the Hellraiser films. Um, the Hellraiser movies obviously have really interesting visuals and really, you know, bizarre set decoration and stuff like that. But Inferno, you know, I think of, of like the scene where he's being chased by the two um, weird female cowboy Cenobites um, and like through the woods. And it's really, it's a really weird scene. And there it's like really super backlit and it's in the forest it's at night, you know, it's big bright blue light silhouetting everything. And it just reminds me a lot of, of Lynch and of this uh, of, of this iconography that Lynch creates when you watch a, a Lynch film um, that really just stands on its own, that that you 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 don't associate it with anything else. You know, it's not a a zombie walking with his arms stretched out in front of him. You know, it's not something you've seen before. You know, yeah. here we have two Cenobites and cowboy hats backlit by the moon and fog, you know, and, and a a whimpering detective like cowering before them. It's just a really iconic looking moment, but you've never seen anything like it. And I kind of feel like Inferno is, is full of that stuff. Um, So I think that's, again, you know, we're talking about the originality of this movie of fingers. And I think that that's what kind of stands out is that almost more than, than any of the other Hellraiser films, and perhaps this is, you know, because it was not written as a Hellraiser film, uh, Inferno is just different. It's weird. It's an anomaly. And it works because it has a very talented director at the helm. Yeah, Um, I think that's a big part of it, too. I think the best of these films work uh, because of the directors who are attached, who who have made them. And Scott Derrickson obviously would go on to be, you know, huge. Um, But... uh, this is a great sort of indication of where his talent was going to eventually go. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, he definitely took big swings and he definitely, you know, took the material seriously and he wanted to play with stuff, you know, like there's sequences in this movie where, um, there's like these earthquakes that keep happening in this weird, like dream realm that Craig Sheffer's in. And, and you can tell that Derrickson's playing with the camera 
in, in those moments. You can tell that he's saying, well, you know, we're making a Hellraiser movie. Like, let's fuck around. Let's see what we can do. Let's see what the camera is capable of. Um, and I think it works really well. It's, it's very adventurous. Um, and, and it, it, in that way reminds me a lot of the first Hellraiser where, you know, it's clear that Clive kind of had full creative freedom and was doing really interesting stuff. And that's why that's a classic film. Um, Hellraiser Inferno is not as good as the first Hellraiser, but uh, it's it's a good movie and it's unique. It's interesting, um, and and I think that it deserves uh, a, a little bit more love from the uh, horror fandom. Well, here's the big question: uh, If you were having psychiatric issues, who would you trust your care to? Either Fingers Doctor Scotty or Hellraiser Inferno's uh, James Remar's Doctor Gregory. <laughs> Very good question. Um, wow, I you know I think that I think that even though even though James Remar uh, turns out to actually be Pinhead, I still I think would trust him with my psychiatric health more than Doctor Scotty <laughs> because Doctor Scotty is clearly out to make a buck. Um, at 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 the very least, you know James Remar slash Pinhead is uh, out for the love of the game. So I think I'd go with him. You know, I think I probably would too. Doctor Scotty just seems like. Uh... I don't know. I, I Dr. Scotty just seems like a violent sociopath hiding under the guise of a friendly psychiatrist. Yeah, it's super weird. Like that that scene where he is like, "Here you can pay me anything from like 500 to $2,000." Yeah. And card. Your card. Yeah, it's so weird. It's like, "Oh god, what a skis bag." Yeah, very um, very skeevy. Always always choose uh choose Pinhead over uh skeezy uh, book-selling psychiatrist. Uh, well, you know what? That that's our those are our choices. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go over them again just because I think that's a very eclectic uh, mix of films. But these are and the films. what a marathon it would be. Oh my god! So yeah, this would this is your marathon, people. So I'm gonna give it to you right now. So you're gonna start off with Fingers, which is the film that we talked about earlier. God help your soul, and then you're gonna go on to these six films, which Graham and I think. Um, either inspired fingers or films that we at least got enough of a correlation to that we felt like mentioning them. And they are John Waters, multiple maniacs, Harmony Corinne's gummo owner to Kell's applesauce, your ghost, Lanthimos's dog tooth, the Coen brothers, raising Arizona and Scott Derrickson's Hellraiser Inferno. Wow. What a list. <laughs> oh my God. You'd be, you'd be dead by film three. You would. I mean, I, I'm trying to think, is that the order that you would want to watch them in? Oh, I, sure. I mean, I mean, I, I would love, I would love to, you know, it's like three in the morning and you're watching Raising Arizona and everybody's like, oh yeah, wow. Okay. That woke me up. And then you, you're hit with Hellraiser Inferno. Um, <laughs> like that's a way to start your day. I, I, I am, I am very impressed with your inclusion of Hellraiser Inferno. That was, that exceeded my expectations for a, <laughs> for a gramtastic moment. Well, I'm I'm glad. I'm glad. Uh, but it's really a fucking good movie. Everybody should watch it. Uh, do you know if it's available to uh, watch or stream anywhere currently? You know, um, I'm sure it is somewhere. Uh, I can tell you in two seconds. You know what? Uh, I've already found the answer. Uh, it is oh, not have you? anywhere, okay. but you can buy it anywhere for three bucks. Uh, you, you know, yeah, you iTunes, Amazon, yeah. yeah, Voodoo. Um, so I, it's worth three I, bucks. It, it's totally worth three bucks. I actually have a Blu-ray uh, that has um, 
Bloodline, Inferno, Hellseeker, and Hellworld on it. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm i pretty obsessed with the Hellraiser franchise. The only one that I don't own is Revelations, um, yeah. but I own all the others. Uh, well, I had a couple of films that I did not choose, to, that, that didn't resonate with me as much as the others that I mentioned did, but I'm going to mention them quickly just Jeez, because yeah. they, were, uh, they were in my mind. One of them was uh, a pretty obvious one, which was um, – uh, Michael Haneke's Funny Games. Mm, yep, thought of yeah. that one too. Um, Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby popped into my head. Oh, watching this okay, about, sure. Because also shares a contact with you know something inside of a woman that she just wants to get out. Yep. And um, uh, another one was uh, uh, Quick Change, the Bill Murray movie. Oh, okay. Another comedy. A lot of it might have just had to do with the fact that he's wearing, he's dressed as a clown and they were doing very clownish things. It was a very, it was a very superficial connection. Uh, Friday the 13th, part seven, the new blood. Oh, interesting. Popped into my head because you've got this psychiatrist who's trying to make this uh, girl better, but he's also in it for his own financial gain. Yep. And then the other one was, um, a, a really obscure little horror film from uh, over a decade ago called Make Out with Violence. I've never seen that. And um, it was one I saw at the Sidewalk Film Festival years ago, and it popped into my head. And then I was trying to think of a good way to – and I could have – you know, another one of those filmmakers like the ones we mentioned is Todd Salons. Uh, sure. Could I, I could have easily thought of happiness or storytelling, but sure. um, I felt like we had enough of those sort of auteurs in there without mentioning him. Yeah, totally. Um, interesting choices. Yeah, I uh, the the only one I, I also thought of funny games. Like I said, I thought of Pink Flamingos. Um, the only other one that I haven't mentioned uh, was uh, Hearts in Atlantis. Oh yeah, um, I love that book and film. Really, really love that movie. Um, from two thousand one, young Anton Yelkin, Yelchin, Yelkin, Yelchin, Yelchin. Um, and uh, of course, Anthony Hopkins, directed by Scott Hicks. Um, and I just thought of that one because it's it's you know about this guy that's experiencing all these weird things and nobody believes him, um, and and uh, and then finding out no, actually it was all real. Uh, that kind of uh, idea, um, it just popped into my head. Really good movie. I like that movie a lot. Yeah, people don't it, really. T- it's it's not in the hierarchy of Anthony Hopkins films that people talk about, but I really enjoy it. It's really good, and I, it's one of those films that came out. It didn't do very much. It kind of got just labeled as kind of forgettable and i think it's actually a really good film i I also think that is one of to me one of stephen king's better books uh, frankly Mm -hmm. at least of the later the latter half of his career and um yeah that's a great one to discover if you've always just thought eh to hearts in atlantis it's definitely worth watching yeah yeah, it's worth checking out and it's a tie-in to uh the dark tower series which is my favorite fantasy series of all time so you should check it out for that alone Absolutely. Well, Graham Skipper, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Always enjoy talking movies with you, um, and especially weird movies. Uh, you know, let's let's all drink to to weird films. Uh, we need yeah. more weird films. We need way more weird fucked up films. Um, so, where can folks find you on the socials, and what do you've got coming up? Um, I am on Twitter at Graham Skipper. Um, you can also, as you said, find me on the Spoon app, um, with the show called Down in the Basement every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Pacific. Uh, it's sort of a, a horror radio talk show. Um, really fun. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I'm, oh gosh, what am I working on right now? Uh, got a f- whole bunch of irons in the fire. Um, I'm shooting a movie very soon. 
Um, I've got some films that will be playing on the uh, film festival circuit this year that I've acted in, which I'm really excited about. Um, and uh, otherwise, I'm just sort of talking nonsense and trolling Clay Keller on Twitter. I mean, we all kind of just get our kicks from trolling Clay. I mean, it's true. Uh, yeah, that's 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 what I'm that's what I'm doing. Well, fantastic. Um, you can find me on the socials at, at Billy Ray Bruton, and you can find us on the socials at Movies with Gravy. Uh, if you want to support the podcast, you can do that at patreon.com slash movies with gravy. And our next show will be January. This will drop on January 15th. And then January 22nd, we are discussing the Amazon film herself with the amazing Clark Wolf. Ooh, yeah, fantastic. That She's a, wonderful. Yeah, that one's going to be a fun one. And uh, again, major thanks to Graham for being on the show. And now it's time for a little segment that we like to call Southern Hospitality. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Movie theaters. More specifically, movie theater chains. Fuck them. All of them. Well, wait a second. Maybe not all. Places like Alamo Drafthouse are obviously an exception when it comes to the overall quality of the experience, so let's winnow it down even more. AMC, Regal, Cinemark. Fuck you. When Warner Brothers announced that they would be dropping their highest-profile upcoming releases on HBO Max at the same time they would be hitting theaters, people went apeshit. It's the end of movie theaters. It's the end of cinema. It's the end of back-row masturbation. Okay, maybe that last one wasn't of chief concern, but it's real, people. The threat is real. To sum it up, there hadn't been that much uproar since Lena Dunham did whatever the hell dumbass thing she did most recently to remind folks that she's a cultural trash can. People were enraged. So much anger. But who to channel it? Then, as if from a heavenly vision, the seas parted and God himself spoke. Or, in our case, Christopher Nolan, who's as close to God as I am a college quarterback. And, of course... Nolan decried what Warner Brothers did, serving as the pseudo-champion for all the affected filmmakers. And this is what it sounded like. If you didn't understand a word I just said, you might be a Christopher Nolan movie. Yes, old Chris Nolan. Speaker for the people. People like Lin-Manuel Miranda. Denny Villeneuve. Filmmakers and artists who obviously need Nolan's pompous ass as their representative. We get it, Chris. You love film. You love movie theaters. You know who doesn't love movie theaters? Just about anyone who's ever been inside one. For starters, to even gain access to one, you have to spend as much money as it costs for a Red Lobster dinner. Don't judge, times are tough. This is only compounded when you get to the concession stand, where the words inflation and price gouging have no meaning. 
Motherfuckers, we know how much popcorn costs. But that's just the beginning. You generally enter a marginally clean, if not entirely dirty auditorium, and sit down on a seat that is either partially broken, totally broken, covered in something sticky, or about to be covered in something sticky. Then the movie starts. Or does it? Maybe it starts. Maybe it starts after half an hour of ads. Maybe it starts 15 minutes late. Hell, maybe they play a different movie altogether. But by the time it does start, who the fuck cares? Because the picture quality and the sound quality are usually the last things anyone at that theater gives a shit about. Dark screens because of cheap-ass theaters wanting to save bulb life or because the staff doesn't, doesn't know any better. Terrible sound because most multiplex techs are teenagers or the equipment is just not serviced properly. And lest we forget the smell, the smell, of something that can only be described as what the old man in Home Alone smelt like before you realized he was good. That is the movie theater chain, the multiplex experience. Because all they are about is profit, plain and simple. So let's stop talking about the majority of movie theaters like they're run by this sweet old couple who run the whole place themselves and are just trying to send their grandkids to college. They're run by Bill Murray from Scrooge before he finds Jesus. The only thing they care about is to watch you empty out your wallet on some overpriced Miss Pac-Man game that costs $2 per play. Now, indie cinemas are different. The actual mom and pop independently run establishments that still give a damn about presentation and the quality of the overall experience. I live in Los Angeles, and we are blessed to have plenty of places like those. The Vista, the Arrow, the Egyptian, the Nubev, though frankly most of those are rep theaters. But the movie-going experience at those places is alive and well. And what about that? The movie-going experience. Why are we constantly expecting that to just fail? Or stop. People have been going to the movies since a bunch of dumbasses thought a train was headed for them out of a goddamn wall. Movie going has survived so much. The Great Depression, McCarthyism, multiple wars, the studio system, the post-studio system, pirating, digital, streaming, Adam Sandler. Movie going isn't going anywhere. The landscape might change, yes. But shouldn't it? Shouldn't it evolve with the times and the industry and what people actually want? Streaming has produced more amazing content than ever before, opening up doors to so many new, creative, and underserved voices and communities, far more than mainstream moviegoing has. Back to HBO Max. So what? Yes, they probably should have discussed their decision with the filmmakers beforehand, but they're not obligated to do that. I am all for the rights of the filmmaker, but Warner Brothers is the company writing the checks and footing the bill. They're the ones with the most on the line. So if they want to release one of their properties on HBO Max at the same time it's in theaters, that's entirely their right. Is it smart? Well, that's another discussion, and only time will tell. But most filmmakers know, especially when you're making a film for a large studio like Warner's, once the film is in the can, the filmmaker only has so much control. Sure, Asshats like Chris Nolan might get whatever the fuck they want handed to them on a silver platter, but that's just because he's so fucking pretty. Most filmmakers don't get that, and never have. Warner Brothers is simply trying to protect their investment at a time when nothing is certain or clear. 
we don't know when the majority of Americans are going to feel comfortable entering a movie theater again. So what does Warners do? Postpone their entire slate another year? Release them in however many theaters might be open and just hope for the best? It's not like they're pulling these films from theaters altogether. They're saying, at the same time, if you want to see one of the films in a theater, you likely can. No one is stopping you. But for folks who might not feel comfortable going into a public space after a catastrophic global health event, they can watch it on HBO Max and spend less on concessions total than a single bottle of water costs at a goddamn Cinemark. That's right, Cinemark. We got your number. Movie theaters aren't going anywhere. At least not all of them. But I'll say this. Personally, if every single corporately owned multiplex got shut down and converted into a roller skating rink, I wouldn't be upset. Hashtag roller skating life. Because again, corporate movie theater chains are the devil. I would love to see us return to a simpler time when most movie going occurred at opulent picture houses or one to two screen independent art houses. I would also love to see the return of Jonathan Taylor Thomas, but I'm not holding my breath. So let's get over the fantasy that the majority of movie theaters are worth championing and this fallacy that movie going is going to somehow end because of the pandemic. There are people still going to the movies now during the pandemic. What do you really think it's going to be like after? There is nothing I love more in the world than sitting in a dark theater with a bunch of strangers and experiencing a new and exciting cinematic moment together. It really is the best. Some of my favorite memories have been inside movie theaters, and yes, some of those movie theaters have been the same corporate ones I've been lambasting. You work with what you got. But sometimes, you're not in the mood for that. Sometimes you want to sit in your dark bedroom with some Bud Light and Doritos and experience whatever the hell Netflix decides the surprise drop that day. And both are acceptable. And both are vital. And if you can do either or at the same time, what's the goddamn problem? Different strokes, right? At least at home I don't have to go shh to someone every five minutes. If only the movie theater audiences were as difficult to hear as every single Christopher Nolan film. Then we'd be in business, Cinemark. And that's our show. Movies with Gravy was conceived of, hosted by, and produced by me, Billy Ray Bruton, and the theme song is Country Roses by Flannery Whaley and me, Billy Ray Bruton. Y'all come back now, you hear? Country Roses, blessed songs, mommy's here.